is Actually You Are a Real Runner with Jacqueline Riccio. Hey, it's Jacqueline with systemsforselfcare.com, where I teach you to consistently take daily actions so you can feel happier, healthier, and more confident. Today on the podcast, I'm really excited. I have a clinical psychologist, Esley. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well. Glad to be with you. Yeah, I'm really excited. So we have an international speaker right here. You're in Canada right now, but you're from Brazil. Um, I'm really excited to connect with you and just kind of share more about you and what you do and what you can provide for the audience. So I always like to start out just kind of hearing about my guests. And um, I know that you said you're currently a walker, an avid walker. Was walking or sports or athletics, was that anything that you grew up with, grew up with, or was this later on in life that, that became important to you? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I was born in Brazil and I was raised in Texas and I can draw like the best of them. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, growing up in those years, they really made us do a lot of PE and I got used to that and I liked it. I played volleyball. I did a lot of swimming I, and I swim to this day to, to a large extent, nothing professional or even, you know, just, <laughs> just for enjoyment really. Yeah. And then I went back to Brazil when I was about 16 and we do a lot of walking in, in the city just, just to get around, you know, catching buses and cars were very expensive back then. So I, I walked and I always enjoyed walking and then I moved many, I moved a lot of places. I, I've lived in Ecuador. I've lived in Bolivia. I lived in Colorado Springs. I lived in Bolivia again and Ecuador again. And I lived in wow. Dallas. I went, we went back to Dallas before we went back to Brazil. And I've been in Brasilia, which is the capital of Brazil for the last 15 years. And it has got to have the most perfect weather on the face of the earth. So we have like 300 days of the year that are beautiful. And the other 65 are pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> So you can almost always every day get a walk Mm -hmm. and and this is a city that was kind of built from nothing we had to fly in the cement and the bricks there was no road to it when they built it back in the 60s and it's like 3,000 feet above sea level and it's very dry so it's very nice to walk and stuff I used to jog I jogged for a long time not a long time but I, I enjoyed running and jogging and stuff but I couldn't do it for a long time because of you know physical health and stuff and seven years ago I had thyroid cancer and so I couldn't walk and I went from walking like 10,000 steps a day to 500 yeah I mean it was from the bedroom to the kitchen from the kitchen to the bedroom and that was it and um, that's when I think I began to realize how much I missed walking and I realized that, you know, it's, it's good not only for my physical health, it's my mental health. And I realized that more recently when I have, I have a friend, she and I went on a, on a trip to Europe for business and stuff. And every day I would say, let's go for a walk. And she says, I've already done my fitness stuff this morning. What do you mean you want to go for a walk? I have not. I'm not going to sit in front of here and do fitness that I want to go for a walk. And she talked about it once in one of our classes. And that's kind of when I realized, wow, walking is really, 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 really important to me. And so I don't get out and about so much. And nowadays with COVID, you know, we're in front of a computer all day long. But I make it a point to get out every day for at least half an hour if I possibly can, except when it snows here in Canada, which I cannot (laughs) deal with. That's an issue. But even like I would go on a trip and I'd, I'd walk the halls in the hotel and just, you know, but I especially like walking outside, which is one of the reasons I want to go back to my house because in Brazil, because we've been in Canada, like I said, with, as a COVID refugee, because where we are, it's, it's, it's very, very safe in PI. And then I was able to find, because the weather is so wonderful, I find a swimming pool very close to my house within walking distance. <laughs> and so I swim. And so I would swim two or three days a week. And let me tell you, I have left more problems at the bottom of that swimming pool. I would hate to be the person who cleans it up. (laughs) Because, you know, I get mad about something. And about lunchtime, I'd go for my swim two or three times a week. And I'd swim and swim and swim. And I'd think and I'd... And, you know, 40 minutes later, I'd come out of it. And I said, I came out of it. You know, I'd come out of my pool and I would come out of the crappy stuff I was feeling. And so I really enjoy that. Like I, I'm a low key, you know, 
exercise person. And now I'm 66. So it's not like I'm going to go out and run a marathon because I'm not. But I don't want to go without exercise at all. And I also want to go back to Brazil because I can <laughs> swim there a whole lot easier than I can here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really good message to hear about movement because I know like for me and I know for a lot of listeners, maybe like in our 20s, exercise was so, it was punishment. It was punishment for what you ate. It was punishment to, towards your body. But to like embody this, hey, I have to move for my mental health. Or like what you said, like, hey, I just had to go into the pool and swim some laps and didn't matter how fast you were going or, you know, you weren't setting, you weren't trying to train for the Olympics. You just needed to get out of your head and get into your body. And it's amazing because now that um, I've come in as a clinical psychologist, there's a new therapy that was developed about 30 years ago called EMDR for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it talks about how we can deal with our um, bad memories and adverse experiences and traumas even with what they call bilateral movements, you know, bilateral stimulation, which, you know, in a clinical setting is done with your eyes or even with hearing or with, you know, on your hands or something. But we realize that this also comes from two important places. One from our sleep, you know, because we move our eyes quickly. We have the rapid eye movement sleep that we go through several times during the night, which is when we dream and we process things. And then we can file that stuff away. And we can talk later about what happens when you aren't able to process it. But walking and swimming provide enormous amounts of bilateral movement. You know, because you're walking with one foot and with the other foot or you're swimming, you know, with your hands and coordinating your hands and feet. And one of the reasons that we feel better after a walk, it's not just because of the fresh air or just getting out of the house. It's because we're also processing things. And we've seen great thinkers who did huge amounts of walking, like six, eight, ten hours a day sometimes. And I would attribute a large amount of this to the bilateral stimulation that their brains would receive from walking. So walking is amazing. And it's, you know, it's something that most people can do for most of their life. Yes, yes. I think what you shared too about going from a period where you could walk and then you couldn't walk, you could only do 500 steps just around the house to being able to do it again. is probably like so much gratitude that you're able to move in your body again. I know I had someone else on the podcast who was talking about her mom has MS and like being, okay, cool. My mom can't move, but I can. And I think for my recently, my husband had surgery on his, uh, his heel and seeing for him too, like him having like, again, 200 steps from the living room to the kitchen on crutches and that being a struggle. It was like, I need to get outside and I need to move my body. Um, can you and share? I, I, had a, oh, I had an interesting experience when I went back to swimming because I slowly started building up the walking. I've never gone yeah. back to the full 10,000 steps, but I'm usually about seven to 8,000 steps yeah. in the weather. Sometimes it'll be five or six, but I get my five or 6,000 steps a day uh, pretty much in. But when I went back to swimming mm-hmm. and I used to swim, you know, the teacher saw me, you know, 40, 40 minutes or something. And I popped back and 10 minutes later, I was, you know, huffing and puffing and coming out of the pool. And he said, mm-hmm. oh, what do you mean? The class is over already. You kind of like you lazy bum, which is what they often imply. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? You don't, you shouldn't talk to me like that. You should say, oh, you did 10 minutes of swimming. I've just come out of all of this. You know, I've come out of surgery. I've come out of a cancer diagnosis. I've come out of radioactive therapy. I haven't been able to work for four months. I haven't been able to do more than 500 steps for six months. And now almost a year later, I'm back at swimming and I did 10 minutes. We're going to celebrate 10 minutes. We're going to celebrate 15 minutes. You get it? And he says, you are so right. So I think, you know, people need to understand the flip side of why people get out of a pool after 10 minutes. And it's not that we're being lazy. Many times this is what we can do. And it's a victory. Just getting back into the pool was a victory. And I was so proud of myself. Now I'm back to my 30, 40 minutes again. But um, it, it took almost a year to get back there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good to hear. 
I mean, it's, it's unfortunate to have to start over, but like so many, you have to start over and you start where you are and you don't go like, don't jump in and do 30 minutes, do just 10 and build up A to B, A to B. That's right. You know, and it's fine. Now I'm kind of back to where I was and back to where I feel comfortable and doing what I can do and, um, and feeling, feeling emotionally a whole lot better because now I go out and it's kind of like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to go for a walk. Everybody knows I'm going for my walk. (laughs) Can you share more about, okay, you said bilateral movements and how Mm -hmm. this helps you process things. Can you, I'm confused about this. So can you share a little bit more about what's happening and why that works? Okay. Um, in 1987, Dr. Francine Shapiro, uh, who's a budding clinical psychologist at that point, went for a walk in the park because she was mulling over a cancer diagnosis herself. And she'd gone back to you know school and gotten her degree and things like that. And while she was walking and thinking about some things that were very upsetting, she noticed that the negative charge decreased almost like spontaneously and she thought about it and she says what did I do that made this happen and she realized that she had uh, moved her eyes spontaneously from one side to the other and that this had decreased the negative uh, um, feelings that she had had so she tried it again she tried thinking about something else and moving her eyes to make a long story short eventually this became a scientific protocol And it is today recognized by the uh, World Health Organization since 2013 as a uh, scientific evidence-based form of psychotherapy to help treat trauma. And even the National Registry of Evidence-Based Psychotherapy and Practice in the United States now recognizes it as, you know, it's kind of like the gold stars that we really needed to show that this is evidence-based. It's not, you know... Uh, woo-woo stuff, not hokey-pokey stuff. Because when you tell people, says, you know, you're going to wiggle your eyes and you're going to feel better. People kind of look at you. I mean, <laughs> the first time they did this to me, I said, ah, oh, you're going you're gonna to do what? It works. And it's scientific. There's a protocol. There's eight steps that you need to do. You need to do this with somebody who's properly trained. And what we do is we ask the person to think about something negative, a negative experience, for example, oh, a bad uh, car accident or, you know, a rape or... Um, something that happened in your child, even small things like, you know, peeing your pants when you're in first grade because the teacher wouldn't let you get to the bathroom in time, stuff like that. And those things can be very impacting. We have no idea how much damage some of these things can do for, you know, your your adult life. And we uh, have them think about the images and the beliefs that people have because when we have bad experiences that we can't process right, we think lies about ourselves we think negatively about we have that inner dialogue that says oh I'm no good when you know I'm not I can't do anything right everything you know goes wrong my stuff never works and um we think about the 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 thoughts the emotions and the physical feelings Mm -hmm. and then the therapist will either turn on a little machine or else with their fingers ask the 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 patient to follow with their uh with their eyes while the movement goes from one side you know from one side of their eyes to to the other from one side of their head to the other mm-hmm. and this gives a kickstart to the brain mm-hmm. and the brain begins to process it's not like Ooh, you know the brain processes it and it does something that it knows how to do but that it was interrupted either because of the um, content of like the nightmare or you know the anxiety provoking experience makes people wake up for example and they could, the brain couldn't do it by themselves. So we kind of make it, we force the brain in a good way just to get past that roadblock and then it will process it itself. And sometimes it'll bring up things from the past that were also connected to it. I, you know, I say that sometimes we have like a thread with a lot of knots on it. And, you know, we start with one, with one knot and many times the brain will say, hey, but you've got other things in this file you didn't know about or you don't remember, but I put them all together. And all of the car accidents or all of the muggings or all of the, you know, times that, you know, your dad screamed at you or your, you know, mom spanked you or whatever it was that happened, you know, when you're growing up. And it processes all of these things. And the negative charge goes away. That's why it's desensitization. Mm-hmm. But. We also have a normal 
spontaneous, natural way of coming up with good things about ourselves. So all of a sudden you begin to realize, well, it wasn't my fault. You know, I was only five years old. How can I keep a baby, you know, who's one out of, you know, from, from falling off the bed or something, you know, oh, this wasn't my fault. You know, I'm a good person. I can do these things. I can accomplish it. And this starts coming up spontaneously, which is kind of like the truth, you know, before we, we believed in the lie, now we believe in the truth. And this totally changes our perception of the past because, you know, we can't change the past, but we can change how we look at it. Mm -hmm. And the past doesn't have to keep me hostage. You know, I can make changes in this now. Now we have the tools to do this. And then I can start thinking good things about myself. I am capable. I'm an intelligent person. I can do this. This was not my fault. And it changes how I make decisions and it changes a lot of other things in their lives because trauma freezes up parts of our neural system network, you know, so we don't learn right. How does an eight-year-old learn math if she doesn't know if her dad's going to come home drunk Mm -hmm. or not tonight, you know, if he's going to beat on somebody or if he's going to be in a good mood and be that wonderful person that he can be. Or if he's going to be the monster, you know, or the beer (laughs) Mm -hmm. that comes home from the bar or something. And you can't learn, you know, if you are more in tune with the inner noise of what's happening inside of yourself than the outer noise of math and biology. And so oftentimes I wonder how much of what is attributed to attention deficit really is the anxiety that children are, are living through from their home. Uh, or even their school experiences, you know, bullying and, and things like that and discrimination and blah, blah. And so it keeps us from learning. It keeps us from making good choices. You know how people sometimes say, I know better and I keep repeating the same thing over and over again. I'm, mm-hmm. I know I need to leave this relationship. It's abusive. And yet I can't seem to be able to find the door to get out of it inside of myself. It's trauma, you know, so it keeps us from being able to make better decisions, take care of ourselves. Um, And all of these things, EMDR will free you from these things. We can stop thinking about that thing all the time, the the intrusive thoughts, you know, I'm not going to think about this anymore. I'm going to change my mental, you know, conversation. And 15 minutes later, you're you're right back where you started, you know thinking about the accident or whatever that happened, the fall, I've, you know, athletes, you know, you have gone through a lot of these things. Um, We saw this with Simone Biles just now in the Olympics. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm so glad that she called attention to the mental health issue. I wish in many ways that, you know, we had been able to help her before she got to the Olympics so that we could have helped her have more confidence, you know, in herself, in her body, so that she wouldn't get these twisties thing, you know, so that um, I've, I've helped some Olympic athletes before as well, so that they could improve their behavior, because so much of what goes into doing well, as an, even as an athlete has to do with, you know, the coaches and the stuff that they said to you, or your parents' requirements, and how they want you to live up to certain things, and and so there's a lot of trauma, sports trauma, falls, you know, I mean, some of these falls are deadly. I mean, Simone was right. I mean, if you yeah. miss a fall on one of those things, mm-hmm. you can kill yourself right there or injure yourself for life. So I'm very glad that she called attention to that. And I really, really hope that more athletes will get, you know, this kind of treatment so that they can do even better than they, than they do because the anxiety of this thing. I saw um, a tennis player. Mm-hmm. Rayonich, I think it was. I think he's Canadian, originally from maybe Serbia or something. And we saw him once when he was, you know, having his off time, his between, you know, sets time. And he was doing bilateral movements on himself, you know, as he prepared himself for the next set. Like, what did that look like? What is that in the moment? What does he do? Um, it looks like sometimes it looks like they're hugging themselves, you know, but one hand, uh, is is touching their arms while the other one is off you know it's what they call it like a butterfly hug or something and you can do that bilaterally on yourself and that will help you know kind of calm down and soothe and and process the difficult and the anxiety that it is to work you know to to play at that level now that performance level is 
is very, you know, anxiety provoking. And just to calm yourself so that you can, you know, go in there or on your legs as well, you know, as well, you can, you know, tap your legs, one leg and the other leg, not together, but, you know, alternated. Um, and that can help. We saw that once on TV and I said, hey, look at there. He's he's been there. He's been there, done that. <laughs> and nowadays, you know, we're even getting some celebrities who have really um, come to understand the importance of treatment. We saw recently, I think in the last month or two, Prince Harry talking about how EMDR therapy helped him overcome his mother's death. So, you know, this is really important and how getting this word out. Plus, there's a lot of work that's done in humanitarian disasters and situations like with earthquakes. There were a lot of people who went to like Sri Lanka and other countries after that tsunami. Um, It started out in Oklahoma with that bombing, you know, years ago. And they also helped with the 9-11 power situation. So, There are groups that have been trained in different countries all around the world. Uh, In Brazil, we've trained over 3,000 therapists in in EMDR. And we can go in in situations of flooding or fires and things like that almost immediately after things have happened and do a kind of intervention, even group protocols for this, so that we can avoid having people uh, develop PTSD, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, um, soon after these terrible things that happen, like in a mass shooting or and things like that. So there are many things we can do, you know, phobias, you know, people who are afraid of syringes or, you know, taking blood or, you know, snakes or um, going up in elevators, airplanes. Oh, my goodness. We treat so many people who are afraid of airplanes. <laughs> so it's an amazing sort of therapy. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. I feel like the more that I kind of started doing research on my own in what different types of therapies are out there. And actually, this actually started from I listened to um, a podcast episode. There's a podcast called This American Life, and they were going through um, DBT, dialectic cognitive therapy. Yes. Uh And so they actually recorded these sessions with a woman who was sexually assaulted. And when I was listening to this, I was like, how come when I got therapy, it was nothing like this. It wasn't, um, there was no approach there. It wasn't systematic. It was just, oh, you're feeling anxious today. What are you feeling anxious about? And it was just like talking. And a lot of times it did not make me feel better. I would leave feeling worse and then would just stop going eventually and nothing really ever got accomplished. But like now when I read things like I'm reading, um, what am I reading? Uh, the body keeps the score Yes, and I'm reading about this stuff and I'm like, there's so many things out there that people don't know about. And I think a lot of people don't want to go because they don't want to just, I don't want to just talk. I want to get somewhere like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. We, um, we talk about, you know, a paradigm shift. I have a friend who says, we don't do like, we don't do therapy like we used to do, which is very, very true. And now I was, you know, talking to a friend of mine is, you know, that our treatment plan is our map of hope. You know, when we listen to people in our first session, when I sit down and listen to them, I listen to all of the, the ruptures, you know, the, the breaks, the losses, uh, the surgeries and falls and, you know, uh, traumatic things and adverse experiences themselves that people are sharing with us. And I take note of those things because those are the things that I am going to want to work on. I put together a treatment plan. We put them together and then we work systematically through these adverse experiences so that we can help them change their perception of these bad things that happened to them and give them, you know, a whole new lease on life. There was a study that came out maybe 20, 25 years ago called the ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And it was done with more than 17,000 people. And they administered a scale of zero to 10 about adverse experiences in childhood. Like, uh, did somebody in your family drink or you weren't well taken care of? Was somebody in your family in a psychiatric unit or tried to commit suicide? Were your parents ever separated once before the age of 18? You know, things like this. Did anybody ever sexually touch you in a way that was not, you know, comfortable and things like that? And what they saw was that people who had three or or more, three, four more on this scale, developed serious diseases, physical illnesses in their adult age. 
like when they're 50 and 60 years old, and they would get diabetes and cancer, psychosomatic diseases, high blood pressure, all of these things. When I read this, I understood why I had cancer before I was 60. I said, oh, well, bingo, we understood that one. And when I read that, and I thought, well, if this has this kind of an impact for a physical illness, how much more for an emotional illness? And so EMDR will help us heal these childhood adverse experiences Mm -hmm. so that when we become adults, either as children, because we can do this with children, but even the children who live inside of us adults, because we have those folks who live inside, you know, um, if we can heal that, not only do we help people live better emotionally, which they certainly will, we can help them live better physically as well, because it's also intertwined. So now we have tools that really produce results. You know, I I rarely have a patient that stays with me for more than a year, maybe a year and a half. The average is probably six to 10 months. We can get so much done. And I, and I even have intensives, like a two-day intensive, where I start from the very, very beginning of life. And we just walk them through cleaning up the mess, you know, from, you know, from conception, from the womb, from birth, early childhood trauma, and keep going. And this, this is life changing for some of them, you know, so we can now produce results, you know, whereas it used to be like just talk therapy. And talk therapy only talks about, you know, it's only a small part of our brain. EMDR integrates all of these different parts of our brain, and we can physically see the difference. We have tests like with SPECT scans and functional MRIs where you can see before and after. You know, uh, after my surgery with the doctors that I was um, working with, we did um, a research project on people who had needle phobia, people who had, it's a small pilot project. We had a person who could not get pregnant because she was afraid of the needles and all the tests that she would have to do during pregnancy. And another person who could not even look at a photograph of a needle, you know? So they did a spec scan before. And I, when I found out they had to have a needle thing, I thought, Oh my goodness, it's over. (laughs) They're never going to do this, but they were, they cried all the way through it. They sweated and got through the, the first, you know, that, that needle thing. And then we did three sessions of EMDR with them. The first time that they had uh, issues with the needle, the worst time, and the next time. So these were the three time issues that we worked with them, the, the three goals. And then they went back to the MRI. Now, the doctors that I was working with said, this will never show up in a spec scan. Says, oh, yes, it will. No, it won't. Yes, it will. No, it won't. And I said, can we try? <laughs> And it was like the day they looked at the scans, the final scans, and compared the two of them. It was like they came out of the computer. Said, I can't believe this. You are right. This thing shows up. You can see the difference in the anxiety parts. You know, the yeah. the, the inner, the middle core of our brains, the, the the limbic system. Because when we're nervous, you know, and we have uh, phobias and stuff, it shows up in our uh, our flight fight flight freeze part of our brain you know get got through that one and anxiety is the sense of danger and so it shows up as danger Mm -hmm. and then when you do emdr it calms down and it physically disappears and it will only show up when it should show up you know and where it should show up so we see just amazing things you know i had a I have a friend who used to have migraines anytime she sat under a very bright light. And it was, you know, it was so, you know, notorious in her family that even her kids would say, mommy, don't sit there in the restaurant because you're going to get a headache. And she'd done all the tests and gone through all the medication and all the other stuff. Well, nada, nothing helped. And one day she went to do an EMDR session with a colleague and they started with a surgery she had done and the brain pulled up the thread of another surgery that she had gone through 15 years before when she had almost died and all of a sudden she recovered this memory of having woken up Uh, she woke up and when she opened her eyes she had this splitting headache yeah because of the pain from the bright lights above her plus the nausea from the anesthesia she says you know what i can tell you exactly where the doctors were standing and the nurses what they were dressed what they said and i said something and they didn't nobody answered me of course you know they just kind of you know elbowed the anesthesiologist and told her to put her back under and uh and so they did 
And she says, I don't remember physical pain, but I do remember, you know, the horrible pain of the lights in my eyes and feeling nauseous. Well, I almost died from that surgery because it had been a very grave and serious intervention. And I was so sick and took so long. I never remembered that I had woken up. And obviously, nobody was going to remind me. The doctors were not going to tell me that, oh, by the way, you know, you woke up in the middle of surgery. And um, she remembered this 15 years later in the middle of an EMDR session. She reprocessed this memory. And she has never, ever, ever had another headache. Not a headache, much less a migraine. Never again. That's amazing. It is amazing. So it's satisfying to work and see results like this. I mean, we're talking a one hour session that healed her migraines. If we Mm -hmm. can find the root of it, we can get at it pretty fast. Now, different people respond in different ways. We have different protocols for different things. You know, the more complex and fragmented the person's upbringing, you know, made them because people have gone through some horrible things, you know. That's going to take longer. You know, there's no miracle cure as such. But there are days when I come home and I still pinch myself. And I, yeah. say, I can't believe what happened today in session. It's amazing the stuff that happens. So it's very I, satisfying. Right. To be able to see those results. And I mean, for the client, for, the, for them to experience those, I mean, maybe not immediate, but quick, quicker results versus a lifetime of having to take migraine medication or having to like sit out from life. I have a lot of people who it couldn't happen today because I had a migraine. Like I couldn't go out because that like it, it sets you back a lot. Debilitating. mm -hmm. Debilitating. And so to be able to get rid of some of these symptoms, you know, that can be trauma-based. I mean, Dr. Francine uh, Shapiro would say all psychopathology except for those, you know, congenital things like, you know, Down syndrome or other things like that. The basis is trauma. The basis of all psychopathology is trauma. And when we look at our patients and we look at people who are suffering, look at ourselves, look at our friends and what they're going through, we see this, you know, why do people have problems with airplanes? They've gone through a bad experience with airplanes, you know, Um, why do people, and sometimes if you don't see it immediately, you know, the brain can do the Google search, and we just need to help it find its way and it will find the memory that it needs to find to help us heal. So there are things that have been, you know, cleared up in two, three, four sessions, other ones that take two or three, four years, but they resolve. This is evidence-based. So we know it's scientific. We can see it in our, you know, our spec scan- scans and things like that. And if it takes a little bit longer because the person, you know, is more fragmented, more scattered, more needs more sewing up, yeah, it does. But two, three, four years later, you're done, you know, and you have the rest of your life. And with children, this can be even more amazing. I'll tell you a story of, uh, I have a friend of mine, and this was in Ecuador. She had a patient who had been assaulted, mugged when she was five months pregnant. Well, yeah, we have, yeah. unfortunately, we have an urban you know, warfare in our, many of our big cities in Latin America and Brazil. And so after the baby was born, the baby was about six years old, and he um, had so much, how do you call this in English, all of a sudden the word's gone, you know, he he couldn't go to the bathroom, he couldn't poop, you know, Mm -hmm. and he just held it in, and she had taken him to all the pediatricians and, you know, all the, anything that anybody suggested to help this child, you know, uh, be able to go to the bathroom properly. And so the therapist was so smart. She just saw it. She says, bring the baby here. So she had mom put the baby on her lap and she had him, had her uh, put the little boy's uh, legs out towards the therapist, laying down on her, on her lap with the legs out. And she turns around to mommy and she says, tell me what happened to both of you, to you, to y'all, as we say in Texas, tell me what happened to (laughs) y'all when y'all got assaulted that time when you were pregnant so she starts telling the story obviously she she connects with the emotion and the fear and all this other stuff and meanwhile the therapist is touching his legs bilaterally you know with her hands tapping on his legs back and forth and boom this kid pooped (laughs) and he was done because our biggest challenge with children is making them think about what happened to them but since a six-month-old connects with mommy, still, yeah. you know, whatever mommy feels, they still pick it up very much. And he had gone through 
with mommy. And that's what had been the cause of, of so much of this. And that was that, you know, 20 minutes later, he was done. It's <laughs> amazing. I think just being able to have hope that there is something that can be resolved if you've, you've, you've just been so used to things not working out or just being in a string of going through therapists and just not having anything resolved. Like there's hope for that. It's amazing things because I was, you know, like I said, our treatment plan is our map of hope. And so when people come, even if, you know, I can't do everything in a first session, you can't do it, <laughs> but we, we can give them hope. Because, you yeah. know, I listen and I, and, and I give them obviously my honest, you know, assessment and stuff. Um, I think we can help you. I think this is how long it may take. It may take longer, it may take, you know, shorter, it depends on how you process, but this is something we can treat, you know, and this is amazing when you can, Give this kind of, you know, ethically give this kind of hope to a patient. It changes our lives as therapists. It changes a client's life Mm -hmm. as a client. Wow, there's hope. Says you're just going to have to walk through this stuff. I'll walk through it with you because some some of these experiences are horrible. I think the other thing that's interesting is a lot of this is done in silence. We don't necessarily have to talk a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And this is also encouraging because, while, you know, our brains are so fast. They're so much, they're like four times faster than our talking, you know. And most of this work is done in silence. And I don't need to hear what is being, what happened in order for the person to heal. Mm-hmm. So this helps people like who were, you know, sexually assaulted and people are embarrassed, ashamed of, you know, some of the things that happened or were done to them and and uh, things like that. Sometimes we have like veterans who are uh, in situations of security, you know, and they can't talk about what happened, you know, because they can't talk about the mission they were on and things like this. So being able to work inside and men love it. You know, my patient load went from 10% male to 50%. I have 40 to 50% male patient load today because, you know, they don't like to talk. They want things that are logical. We have numbers on a scale of zero to 10. How much does it bother you now? It's, oh, it's five. Okay. They tell each other, the men tell each other, you know, and they don't have to talk about how they feel, mm-hmm. you know, and it's fast. It's got results. It's logical. It makes sense. So we have really seen a lot more men coming in for treatment than I have ever seen. You know, I've been, I graduated from school. 42 years ago. <laughs> and so most of my, you know, professional life has been working with women. It's not like that now. I have a lot of men coming in, That's a amazing. lot of men getting treatment. And as we can do this, like, like we said, you know, especially if, like with communities, we had a horrible nightclub fire about seven or eight years ago in Brazil and 240 something, 243 people died. Most of them were young people. There were families who lost all their children. You know, they're young adult, you know, children who were in the nightclub and stuff. And this whole city had about 250,000 people. You know, they were all impacted. You know, the grave diggers couldn't stand it anymore. The taxi drivers were asking for help. And if we don't make these interventions (laughs) in trauma situations, the, the community is traumatized. And this trauma goes on for years, two, three, five, 10, 15 years. We're facing this now in Brazil with COVID. Mm-hmm. We have mm, around 530,000 deaths, mm-hmm. you know, out of a population of 211 million people. If you, you know, it's like only 3%, but 3% is 530,000 people. And if you connect the family members and the friends, and, you know, the work colleagues of these people who have died, people who have lost two, three, four people in their families. And this last wave in Brazil started killing people who were much younger, you know. And so we're looking at not only an epidemic of grief and loss, we're looking at an epidemic of orphans. Because we've had families that lost people, children with one to 15 years of age, you know, two to four or five. We all know somebody. Yeah. So we're looking at how can we help, you know, this whole population that's been, you know, so hurt by this mm-hmm. and, uh, and so much in the States and Europe and other countries as well. So we now have tools to make a difference in, in recovery and emotional recovery. So that is in, in that sense, it's very satisfying. It's yeah. Very satisfying. Yeah. So 
I want to switch a little bit. Um, you've written several books and one of them <laughs> caught my eye and you, you mentioned it a little bit, but um, the people that live inside of us, I think, is that what the name, yes. but yeah. So it caught my eye. Cause I know I've talked about um, like an inner mean girl and also like having to be a parent to ourselves. Well, it's, I have several books. Um, one of them is called healing the folks who live inside. And I was, I am, you know, a psychodramatist in my first training. And so I work uh, a lot with role theory and role therapy. And so we um, have all of these roles that live inside of us. And some of them are like the scaredy cat or the rebellious adolescent. I tell my doctors, I said, you know, everybody has a doctor who lives on the inside. And they kind of look at me, you know, she says, what do you mean? It says, well, if you do not convince a person's inner doctor of the treatment they need to do on the way out, they'll throw away the prescription. They will not follow your treatment plan because you did not convince their inner doctor. You know, sometimes I'll go home and say, look at that. There's no way I'm going to do this, you know. And we have um, these unhealed, if you can use that word, you know, parts, wounded parts of us, wounded roles inside of us, children, uh, and things like that, that if we do not heal, we cannot act like a grown up in all of our roles, you know, it just, so we have people who are 35, 40, 50 years old, who who will break down in tears, you know, in front of their, um, their boss, you know, or their husband or wife or things like that. And they're acting like these little children who took over the driver's seat of their lives, you know? And so I remember um, a soccer player, you know, I come from <laughs> a country with many soccer players and there was a Uruguayan soccer player once who bit, bit the ear of his adversary. I mean, he tore a piece out. And I remember looking at my husband and saying, wow, we've got a one or year, we've got a two-year-old here on our hands, you know? I mean, how old are children who bite each other, you know? They're like two, three years old, you know? And here he is, this very famous, you know, expensive player who's behaving like a toddler. And this happens oftentimes. So I wrote this book and talked about, you know, the different roles. I had I had a patient once who came in and she says, you know, I came back from the United States and I bought all these gifts. And my husband's little brats who live inside of him were sitting there looking over my suitcase and complaining that I had brought more gifts for everybody else than for him. You know, he was having this jealousy fit. <laughs> but they can use this language. She uses it. So it's not her husband who's being a brat. But there are some brats who live inside of him and who feel this way many times. So it's a nice language. It's not pathological. I wrote another book called Rupture and Repair, which talks about a therapy um, treatment from beginning to end. All nine sessions that I did with the guy, we call, we, we call him Armando. It's not his real name. But whose father died when he was, you know, 15 by suicide. And, and so I show how this works. But the... The, you know, hitting the folks who live inside. That's, it's a lot of fun, that book. And people look at it and says, wow, this is it. There's, all of us have this, you know. And I said, yeah, if you don't grow up on the inside, baby, you're not going to make good decisions. No, when you were saying the thing about the doctor, um, I've talked to you and I've seen in working with people too, but like you hand someone, okay, cool, cool go do, you know, uh, these physical therapy exercises or work on these things and then exactly that like but you haven't convinced them and they just throw it out um but I think what's good about this too like I like I always come from a place probably something I need to heal that there's something wrong with me that I'm fundamentally flawed but hearing these things it helps me know like okay cool like other people have these things going on as well and there's hope to work on these different parts of me Yes. And I think this is what does give us hope because there are folks inside of us that do function well. You know, it's not like all of me is a disaster. You know, I am sick. No, there's parts of me that are failing and there's parts of me that are succeeding. There are roles inside of me that are, you know, really, really good. Like when I moved back to the United States and I had to cook again, so, you know, I'm a really good therapist, but when it comes to going to the kitchen, <laughs> um, we are, my husband and I are probably one of the few people who lost weight during the pandemic. You know, it's like, I don't do this real well. Is that a failure? It's just, no, it's a matter of priorities and things. But there are other things that I, I would fail at, you know. And so 
if we can see ourselves as a sum of the whole and we can heal these roles and we can integrate them more and more, we become more and more whole people and we're more and more healed and we can have a greater you know, uh, quality of life. We can respond better. We can behave better. We're going to respond better in situations of crises because I can make a better choice. I can make a better response and I can act better because I'm freed from these things. And on the other hand, we can still be that childlike uh, person, have that childlike role that we should keep because there are parts of us, we shouldn't be childish, but we do need to be childlike. It's wonderful to be, you know, fun, be able to play, to have joy, you know, to be able to have a, an ice cream cone and wow, you know, this is just like wonderful and, and enjoy life like children do. Those things are important, but we also need to have the adult part of ourselves so that we can make the right decisions, protect our inner children, you know, and things like that. So it's a lot of fun to work this way. Yeah. Sometimes people will come in and they say, you know, I want to lose weight. And I said, and I listen and says, yeah, you want to lose weight. There's somebody inside who does not want to lose weight. And we know who's winning. <laughs> we <laughs> yeah. know who's winning. Yeah. Um, you know who's winning, so we're going to have to work this out. <laughs> um, I like to hear about, so we heard that you, you do daily walking and swimming a couple times a week. Are there any other like self-care activities that you make sure that you do on a daily or a weekly basis just to help you um, in your, your self-care, your health? Yeah. Um, I like to be quiet. People don't think that much about myself because they see me as a very much an extrovert and noisy. My mother said that I left home. I took the noise of all four of her children with me. <laughs> but there are times when I just want to be quiet. You know, I'm married. I have, you know, I had a child, I have a child and an adult child, obviously, and, and grandchildren. And sometimes I just want to get away. Um, I like to pray. I like to have the exercise of, you know, pe- some people meditate, some people pray. I like to pray. I like to um, read the Bible and be just be quiet and just meditate about good things, you know, things that will edify, you know, not only our spirit, but our bodies and our souls and things like that. Um, I really nurture my friendships, especially my girl friendships, because I was divorced for seven years. I had my first husband left me before I was 30. I had this, my daughter is from my first marriage. And during those seven years that I was alone, I discovered, you know, you can make it in life without a husband. You cannot make it in life without your girlfriends, you know. <laughs> so every once in a while, I say, honey, I'm going out with my girlfriends. Well, or now I, we have coffee over Zoom. Everybody brings their own coffee and we sit in front of Zoom and we yakety yak 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 away. Or we do WhatsApp, which is the app that everybody else outside the United States uses a lot. And we talk and we catch up and things like that. I nurture my friendships. I think there are things that other women bring into our lives that our husbands never can because they're not women. <laughs> and obviously that our husbands, you know, bring something very satisfying as well uh, into our lives. But my friendships, and even though I've been around the world so many times and, you know, lived in different places, I don't lose good friendships. I, re- I make an effort to stay in touch, even before technology made it so much easier I've always made an effort to stay in touch with, with people who, uh, you know, who edify me, who bring me up, who make me feel better about myself and that I can connect and make them feel better about themselves, that we can share, we can share at a deep level, we can cry together. And now, you know, I'm at that point in my life where, you know, we're beginning to lose people, you know, like this week, I have a friend whose husband dropped dead playing you know, I think he was playing football, soccer, you know, soccer to you guys. (laughs) And, you know, 33 years of marriage and boom, he drops dead, you know. So I wrote her a note and said, I'm here for you. Everybody else is going to be forgetting about you in a couple of more weeks and another month. But I want you to know that, you know, I'm going to be around and I'm going to, you know, check in on you. And I know she would do the same for me, you know. So that to me, nurturing our relationships is very, very important. So I think it's, you know, nurturing ourselves, nurturing our relationships with other people, nurturing our, you know, spiritual beliefs, you know, however they may be. I think those things are important. Now, do you work with people online or is it just at your clinic? How does it work? I only work online. 
because one of the deep desires of my heart has been for years to be able to work online. I'm, you know, even though I'm of a different generation than most of my colleagues and friends, I started studying computer science back in 74 before there was even a PC. I, I learned how to program those great big, huge monsters that took up a room <laughs> with little cards, you know, those algal things and those check cards and blah, blah. So I learned that way back then. I've always been curious about, I'm, I'm much more the math person than I am the biology person. I'm not a frustrated doctor at all, medical doctor. So I do all of this stuff really online because I have always wanted to be able to work online. And so the pandemic really turned my life around because all of the courses that I wanted to teach online, now I can. And I see patients, you know, from wherever because I can work online. And I have rented out my office. I'm not going back to my office. And there's another personal reason for that as well. The week before lockdown in Brazil began about the beginning of March, you know, it was at the middle of March that we had the lockdown. My husband had... Um, two really bad angina attacks. And so we wound up in the hospital. He had stents put into his darling arteries and they were full of ice cream, you know, vanilla ice cream and maple syrup like most Canadians enjoy. <laughs> and I was at the hospital in the ICU and I called up my friend and I said, I am not ever going to travel again without my husband. I am not teaching and training anymore. I have a foreigner for a husband. I live in Brazil. My family's moved away. I'm not leaving him by himself ever again. Either he goes with me, so I'm not going anywhere. So we're going to move this thing online. She says, you're nuts. I, says, I am not. Take note because I don't have anywhere to write on this thing. <laughs> so that was a decision I made even before the pandemic really yeah. hit us hard. And I am, I just love working online. I think you know, it's interesting. Uh, it's great to be able to get up and go downstairs and have breakfast with my husband and not be traveling and not have to get airplanes. And I've traveled so much of my life that I really want to finish my last days at home and, <laughs> Amazing. and enjoy people, even if it is through a computer screen. But I've made so many new friends and I, I really have. And through the screen, and, I mean, even you, you know, yeah. how have I met you? So that's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> No, that's amazing. And it's, I mean, it's good to hear that this is possible online as well. So let's, what, where are the best places that people can find you and connect with you? And are those courses for people or are those for other therapists? Okay. Um, I don't have a lot in English because so much of my work is done in Latin America and Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, my website is Plaza counselingservices.com. So I have some of those things. I do teach some courses for other EMDR therapists in English. Uh, I am going to start teaching some things for more lay people in the next year or two. So, um, you know, for regular everyday people who want to know more stuff or understand themselves better, I'm working on that. I've got the pilot project going on in Portuguese in Brazil. So yes, I am. Uh, and for those who, read, you know, understand Portuguese, you can look at traumaclinic.com, which is, you know, the one behind me, .com.br, because we are, we are the BR. And I work in Spanish because I um, lived in Ecuador and Bolivia and Texas for so long. <laughs> so um, that one is Trauma Clinic International with a C, not with a T, .com. And a lot of my courses are there as well. So and that's how you can probably connect with me is the plaza counseling services.com. Yeah. And um, love to hear from everybody. <laughs> yeah. I'll put it in the show notes. It's, it will be great for people to connect with you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much for the invitation. I've had so much fun sharing it with you.